This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramaytush Ohlone land. In this episode, co-founder of Movement Generation Justice and Ecology Project, Gopal Dayaneni, is joined by community organizer and environmental justice advocate, Carla Maria Perez, for a powerful conversation exploring the connections between environmental racism and climate change, and what we can do as individuals and communities to address and heal from the harms of both. This episode was recorded during a live online event on April 28, 2021. A transcript is available at ciispod.com. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Good evening. Good evening, Hi, everyone. Wow, gee, um, a conversation on racism, climate change, and pathways to justice feels like stuff we've been talking about for a long time. Um, yeah. I'm going to go ahead and introduce you to our friends in my own way. Is that okay? Yeah, that sounds great. All right. I want to introduce Gopal Dianini as my longtime friend, comrade, and co-conspirator. <clears throat> I would even think of him as a soulmate of sorts. Definitely feel destined to have been coming to each other's paths for this life work that we're both dedicated to. Um, Gopal is a villager. It's one of the first ways that I think of him in my mind, family from Andhra Pradesh, India. Um, he's a loyal son, brother, partner, father, nephew, friend, comrade. Gopal was born with a fire, fire in his gut, and that fire comes out of his gut through his mouth, and he blesses, <laughs> blesses us in the movement um, through his words. Um, he's an organizer, a campaigner, a facilitator, a strategist, an ecologist, and a preschool teacher, one of my favorite sides of him. You should see games that he plays in his workshops. <laughs> he's also a carpenter and a gardener. And like I said, um, a poet and um, just recently coming to embrace the fact that his words are medicine for us. Um, strategy and poetry together um, make a big um, impact on those of us that are contemplating the world and what we can do about it. Um, when I met him, he was working at Project Underground and we collaborated together left and right. And it was in 2001. Uh, we worked together for the first time in 2003. And then um, I'll never forget the day that you said, we have to work together again, because I pretty much only get to socialize people that I work with. <laughs> and lo and behold, we ended up being um, founding members of the Movement Generation Justice and Ecology Project together, which now Gopal is a um, board member. Um, and I've remained a collective member so anyway, it's my pleasure to introduce you that way. Oh, oh Carla, thank you so much. It's just, um, it's such a gift to have that, um, that kind of an introduction. And um, yeah, we, we do talks all the time and it's like, you know, people read your bio, which is, which is cool, I get it, but it's, um, it's, this is so much more important. So I am deeply privileged to be in this conversation with you and to introduce you to all the folks who are watching. And thank you to CIS 
for giving us this opportunity. Um, Carla, oh, well, I just want to start by saying for me, Carla, you um, are so seamlessly commit your politics, your vision, your um, organizing in every aspect of your life, like the healing, um, the, the, the commitment to healing as a foundation for social, cultural, personal, collective transformation is just, it just guides you in everything you do. And um, for me, the, the deep inspiration, and I think some of the most important strategy that we've um, learned together through the work has come from me, for, for me has come from watching you as a parent, always asking yourself, what is the right relationship to have with this human being in this moment? Um, and not who is, who is the person I want my child to become or who's the adult I imagine my child will be, but what is the right relationship to be with this person right now? And that centering of relationship and that valuing of family, of community, um, and to embrace that journey is just one of the most inspiring things about you for me in my life. And us being able to do the work of movement generation together is um, is one of the most important sort of pieces of my life and pieces of my work. So it's just such a great privilege to be in this conversation with you. And we and we have been fellow travelers on this. Like I remember, I'll just start with I remember when we first um, the first movement generation justice and ecology project collective meetings. Um, when we were talking about the climate crisis and you and I were just like, it's not a climate crisis. Yeah. Let's not talk about it as a climate crisis. Yeah. Um, it is something much bigger and much deeper than a climate crisis. Um, and so I actually, um, since I get the opportunity to introduce you, I want to actually ask you to explain that to our folks, to talk about that a little bit more in the context of your own journey, like the journey that brought you to, um, to this work and, um, and to seeing the world in that way. Wow. Okay. Let me, let me find the pathway. Speaking of pathways. Um, so I, um, I'm descendant from one parent from El Salvador, one parent from Mexico. Um, they both immigrated here at different times for different reasons, all part of sort of colonial thinking or um, the colonial project, right? My mom was sent here as a teenager to learn English so that she could get ahead. And she went back to El Salvador, came back later. My father uh, was a student at the, U, um, the UNAM, the Autonomous University in Mexico City. He was part of the student government when the 1968 massacre took place there. And his, all of his friends were either um, killed or disappeared. And so he came here, mm -hmm. he escaped. And um, so my upbringing went, you know, included going back to both of those countries and just witnessing you know, the militarism, the ties with the U.S., the, you know, what I understand now is like the impact of trade agreements, of stolen land, of global land grabbing and moving of international corporations. And, you know, back here at home, um, I didn't put that together with just what I was seeing here. You know, I started noticing um, how our environment was degrading, you know, and like where we lived, we had a really clear view of the bay. And when I first realized like that it was overcome with smog, I was like, what is this? So I started discovering the earth in that way, like ecologically. Um, and, and then I was putting that together with what I had seen in my family, like the militarized state of El Salvador, mm -hmm. 
um, an uncle who had got deported from our house, um, you know, just putting like, what do these things have to do with each other? And as I continued to develop um, and had to choose a focus in college, I was like, I don't know, I, I need to learn and study and understand <laughs> earth and ecology more, but like the people and like rasa, mi rasa, I need to do. And then I met environmental justice, environmental racism, you know, as like a field where actually you're taking on both. Um, and in terms of it not just being a climate crisis, I guess, you know, in that time frame, I also discovered my spirituality. I was born and raised in a devout Catholic family, but that was not my spiritual path. It created a foundation for me. And I um, was always meant to reconnect with my indigenous spirituality. And, and so through that, at the same time, I was uh, learn, uh, learning, observing, integrating and understanding about the earth and energy and you know just how um, human activity that impacts the earth kind of vibrates out and and has a much longer lasting effect than we understand and just how complex everything is so when i was like when we're you're talking about that moment it's like oh man it's not just climate like climate is one symptomatic expression like the problem is so much deeper and then we would go you know we would get into this it's really ecology we have to call it an ecological crisis not just a climate crisis because how can you talk about it without acknowledging the role of water and the water crisis or the way we're you know uh disturbing habitat and like the you know that crisis right but then even deeper than that should i go there yet <laughs> <laughs> yeah is like that it's yeah go how there did we even get to that place of siphoning out climate so and these are like global worldwide brilliant minds right and I know there's maybe there is some strategic thinking involved but I'm like everyone is just putting forward this big climate 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 and I remember you and I being like wow it's not just that it's not only climate it's the whole ecology but then it's like how did we get there it's this crisis of disconnection right and like your work and MG specifically um you know, in, in looking at the, the unfolding of humanity and like what, and along every point in the development of humanity and what we think of as civilization, you know, from before the dawn of domestic agriculture, what happened? Where did those things take place that went and just turned us that much more like off, disconnected us a little bit and a little bit and a little bit more until we get to this global imperialist <laughs> you know, extractive beast that we, you know, contend with today, which just makes it all the more clear that it's not just climate. Yeah. Wow, thank you. That was that was a great way to get this started. So first thing, yeah, like just right off the bat, us um, being able to say, if you say, if you thought we were going to come and talk to you all about <laughs> climate change, it's actually going to be a little bit, a little bit of a different gaze. So yeah well what about you go paul can i ask you the same question like yeah yeah just um uh, once again being reminded that we have such similar journeys in in, in certain ways and mm -hmm. and very different in other ways but um you know also immigrant family um also um displaced um in in ways that we don't even think of as displacement sort of the the way in which um the crash cash crops and chemicals of the green revolution shifted my family from being you know peasant farmers to um, um engaging in the process of mining for calories i don't even 
I don't even call industrial agriculture growing food, right? It's, um, and our, our friend Dave Henson always reminds us it's mining for calories. Um, it's the extraction of wealth from soil. Um, and, um, but that wealth was used to get my dad an education. And, um, and, and, um, and so we became sort of, we, we immigrated eventually to, to the U.S. But, um, but my journey into this work, um, so when I graduated from high school, um, this is a similar, the, the story of going back and forth. You know, when I graduated from high school, I, um, I went to India um, right after I graduated from high school for a year. And, um, and I, I, yeah, I wasn't. I had some issues um, <laughs> as a kid, but when I got to India and I walked off the plane um, in uh, what's what, uh, in Madras, which is now called Chennai, um, I had two nearly simultaneous realizations that put me on my path. Um, the first was, oh my goodness, every single person looks like me. Like everyone looks like me. I hadn't actually, I'd been to India before as a kid, but I'd never <laughs> noticed. I'd never, that had not been a realization that had done to me. It's like, everybody here looks exactly like me. I could disappear in a moment, which I had never experienced growing up in California and Silicon Valley. Um, uh, now, of course, if I go, um, uh, you know, back to where, where I grew up, there's just as, you know, people are just as likely to be speaking Telugu in the grocery stores they are to be speaking English. Um, but when I grew up, it wasn't like that. So I had this experience of like, oh my goodness, everybody looks like me. And then I had this nearly simultaneous experience of, oh my goodness, every privilege that I enjoy, I enjoy at the expense of someone who looks exactly like me. That there is a, um, there is this transfer i am a vehicle for a transfer of wealth i am like the i am a living vehicle of this um transfer of wealth from from the global poor to the global rich and um and, you know and I, I you know i didn't understand it but i had this visceral sense of it mm. and i think that started me on this journey of like what unifies that story like what makes that make sense like how do i explain that um and so, you know, and I, so I started, that's what set me on the journey of, of, of really racial justice and social justice and global justice. Um, but what was interesting, the other part of the story I want to share is like, you know, fast forward a few years and I'm in college and I'm a student organizer, at UC Davis, and I'm doing racial justice organizing and, and, um, and anti-war organizing and, um, you know, in the, um, at the, during the first Gulf War. Um, and I remember getting ready to speak at a rally and there was this like person before me, like an older white environmentalist. They were probably like 30, but at the time I thought they were older. Um, <laughs> now I realize <laughs> now that I'm in my fifties, I'm like, wait a minute. Um, but at the time I, I heard them getting everyone chanting, you know, no blood for oil, no blood for oil. And I, I knew, like I viscerally understood that that was right. Like I knew that was right. And I felt that there was something missing. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, we actually should be chanting, we shouldn't be chanting no blood for oil. We should be chanting no blood or oil because anywhere there's oil, there's going to be bloodshed. There's no other way to get it. And it's sort of like, for me was the psychic break from the Western notion that we are separate from nature or that we can talk about 
um, we can talk about ourselves as, uh, as somehow see ourselves as outside of the living world. You know, I, 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 and this comes up all the time, right? When at MG retreats, when we say all wealth is generated through the work of the living world, some radical lefty racial justice organizer will raise their hand and say, what about labor? And then it's like, wait, you did not hear yourself in the work of the living world? Like that is a profound reflection of the deep alienation yeah, that capitalism and extractivism, yeah, that has created for us. And and it's the unlearning of that and the recognition that we are, as as the as the uh, saying goes, in many cultures, in many languages, in many ways, we are nature defending itself. Mm-hmm. And for me, the environmental justice movement, the climate justice movement, have been about that idea. And in that sense, ecology, you know, knowledge or study of home must include our relationships with each other. And so that, right. that I think for me is the, is like, that's what got me to this place. I think are, are moments like that, these moments of psychic, these brief moments of psychic break with the control mythologies of the dominant culture. And of course, relationships, 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 relationships. Like right. and nobody, there hasn't been an original thought in thousands of years and nobody does anything by themselves. I'm, right, I like right. pointing. I like pointing out to folks like, you know, you know, um, I think therefore I am is bullshit. Like that's I like to call that putting Descartes before the horse, right. because actually, you only have a name because you are not alone. You are named because you are not alone, and to to center relationship in the way we think of everything is I think that that um, the remedy to that disconnect. That's right. And what an important remedy, because when we're talking about, you know, when we're talking about bringing forward solutions for environmental racism or climate injustice, right? Um, you know, I was, you and I were, well, you're, you're a little bit ahead of me, but we were raised in a similar era of organizing, yeah. right? Yeah. Campaign-based organizing, also, you know, very influenced by, um, you know, communist organizing, thinking very like target the state and um, get your metrics in line and, tar- you know, who's yeah. your target and make sure your your demands are winnable. If they're not winnable, you shouldn't even choose them as, you know, demands in your campaign. Um, right. And and we very much like learned an organizing process that reinforced yeah. the power dynamic, right. Between the people yeah. and the elected or selected decision makers um, that yeah. usually, you know, it's not like we didn't win things, you know, we, we did, but it was like, I always saw it as a step forward and step back at the same time, or at least a, another uh trip on the treadmill, you know, because while we may have mm-hmm. gained something, we just massively reinforce that the ones that are in the position and have the solutions are the government, you know, that are usually collaborating with the corporations and the ones that are harming our communities, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. And again, it's, and it's yeah, individualizing. It's like this council person, yeah. the mayor, like this elected person, this whatever, or even this all-star organizer. Right. Like we do that in our own movement history. Right. Like and and the school system has helped us do that (laughs) very much. Let me not put it on the people. Right. It's like Rosa Parks. And yeah. Anyway, what were you going to say? No, I think I no, I think that's I think that's right. And I think for me, that's like one of the most important things to think about in terms of like if we first of all, recognizing, as you said, like 
the climate crisis, like if you want to understand the crisis, you just cannot look up at the atmosphere and count carbon. Mm -hmm. That is actually a distraction, both in terms of um, thinking that then that's the scale at which we should make interventions, but also it averts our gaze from what's really happening, which is like that that crisis is just the emergent consequence of the exploitation and extraction of wealth from communities and um, and and living systems all over the planet at once, mm-hmm. and so that including the living governance inter- systems, right? In living governance and and that those that those that um, that process, um, then the strategic point of intervention becomes like how those communities can be in right relationship with um, each other and the living systems upon which they depend. Um, and, and, you know, the organizing we, we grew up with was like Saul Alinsky um, and right. stop sign organizing. And, and, and I'm not, I, I'm not against all of this. Like there's a right. lot of value right. in it. This That's is right. not, but right. you know, um, it's not and I'm heading to, I'm, I'm taking this to a question directly for you. Okay. It's Saul, Saul Alinsky and, and the stop sign organizing. It's like what you mentioned, like the smart goals, which comes out of the corporate world, you know, it's strategic, it's measurable, it's realistic, it's time bound. It's, right. um, and, um, you know, and then we talk about what's politically possible in terms of the Overton window, which came from an advertising guy. You know, it's, um, it's like all of it is like the tools that we were being told to use um, were actually ones that presume the legitimacy of the existing structures of governance and power and are simply trying to, you know, um, change the outcome as opposed to actually transforming fundamentally relationships of power, which is what I think is most inspiring about the environmental justice movement. It's that in, in an environmental movement where, camp, where organizing is just a tool for winning campaigns, in the environmental justice movement, campaigns are an expression of the power of the people in their organizing. Mm-hmm. And, it's a, and it's about changing relationships of power. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I want to really um, invite you to share with folks on this pathways to solutions and that, like, I, I just love your articulation of, um, and, and I'm hoping that you can really talk about the Healing Clinic Collective um, in this, is, um, is the way in which this idea of, of, you know, like, just not always spending all our time and energy fighting against what we don't want, but right. the strategic, political cultural, emotional, spiritual um, necessity to live into the world we know we need. Um, And I I feel like there are very few expressions of that. Um, I mean, there's many expressions of it, but there are a few that touch my heart, the way the healing clinic work that you've sort of brought into the, you know, brought into our communities expresses. I'd love for you to talk about that and and just speak a little bit to that, that shift in thinking about how we, how, how we move towards solutions and vision. In that way. Great. Thank you. I mean, well, my orientation to that kind of organizing came out of that experience. Like I said, it was just often so as an organizer. So I was like a, you know, knock on your door, recruit you to be a member organizer, right? For many years and, um, and spent so much time like work, you know, weeknights and weekends and with people and their kids at the park, you know, preparing them to speak and, and just how utterly disempowering it was, right? When you, someone gets up, I'll never forget this one mother who got up and talked about how every night she can't sleep because she's not sure her child will be, will stop breathing or not in the middle of the night, you know, from the refinery um, 
pollution and just like people, you know, the, the council just sitting there like going like this and sipping their coffee and they're like not even listening. And then they're like, never mind, you know, give the company the permission, whatever. Right. So it's like, this can't be, this can't be it. <laughs> this can't be how we're going to make. So everything you described is like reformism, right? So we're trying to make little reforms within the system. Um, and, and, you know, I've come across folks when I've talked about resilience-based organizing and just transition who are like, well, we're not the ones who caused all these problems. So why does it sound like all of a sudden it's our responsibility to fix everything when the government and the companies <laughs> like, well, it's, you can look at it that way. Or you can say, who would you rather have fixing the problem? Because what's the track record that the, his, that yeah, the government and right. the corporations have when they get together to fix our problems? It's in their interest yeah. to deepen their pockets, to secure their long-term political aspirations, and to keep uh, inflating the, the wealthy, right? To keep pumping the status quo. So we have to build, right, community uh, built and led institutions to meet our own needs. This is how Movement Generation talks about resilience-based organizing, right? Applying our own energy towards to build out the solutions that we that we know that we need in the way that is appropriate uh, for us and that we control, right? And so, in for the Healing Clinic Collective, um, you know, having lived here in Oakland at that time. Uh, since, let's see, that was in 2013 when I started and I moved to Oakland around um, 99. Um, so, you know, seeing Oakland and the hardships that people in my circles, people on the street, you know, were going through, um, I saw like a little, I witnessed the little Feria de Salud, a little health fair, they called it in New Mexico, um, working with my teacher there when I was pregnant. And it was like in one room, it was a community space. There was no private doors or anything like that. And I saw someone receive a healing and the practitioner like embraced her and she was crying and they were rocking. And I was like, oh, you know, I just never seen a, like a doctor or a nurse, you know what I mean? Someone who's like providing a wellness treatment, like treat somebody that way, you know? And I said, oh, and just like you talked about getting off the plane, you know, and it was like in that moment, it was like, boom, oh my God, this is so right in so many ways for so many reasons. And we need this. And I knew how it had been organized, you know? So the Healing Clinic Collective um, was the answer to a lot of people's prayers. And we consider it very much picking up the baton from, you know, uh, generations not far past who have been doing this work already, right? Um, and we are designed to meet the health and wellness needs of our community with a network or a base, you could say, of uh, socially conscious, politically conscious, uh, spiritually grounded, um, mostly POC, um, uh, at least 50% queer identified somewhere in the spectrum network of practitioners um, that through us agree to show up as community healers and not as sort of um, business people, right? And um, we pledge our allegiance to the uh, guidance of our ancestors and cultural knowledge and cultural protocols and ceremonial protocols. And that is what guides our work. We pretty much like disregard the legal framework as any kind of framework to give us any kind of direction on what we should or shouldn't do. And as we, as 
we, you know, say is if it's the right thing to do, then we have the right to do it and we will. And so we've been operating now for, shoot, we're going on our eighth year. Oh my God, is that right? Yes. And uh, we have a network of um, over 150 um, natural or traditional wellness practitioners and about 200 folks that are like volunteers. And um, we've held, you know, over like 13, 14 clinics, served more than 5,000 people and provide all kinds of other things besides the clinics, you know? Um, yeah. But it's a real, I, I mean, that's yeah. the thing, G. It's like so amazing when people hit us up and they're like, I didn't know where to go. I didn't yeah. know what to do because this was not something I could take to Kaiser, you know, or to my doctor. Thank you. Or I don't so have healthcare. For being, yeah. Or anywhere. Yeah. yeah. Like, thank you so much for being here. Um, yeah. So it's been really incredible to witness. And, and there's not always in this life, in this movement life, you don't always get to see the theory manifest. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, yeah. that theory, it works and we can see it. So it's a real blessing. Yeah. And of course, there's a history of that across, you know, we get, we take inspiration from the Black Panther Party and, you know, the dominant story that gets told about the Black Panther Absolutely. Party, you know, is, is, um, is the, is the, the militants and what is, right. um, and which is absolutely important, but what isn't told is the community programs and the recognition right. that um, it is always, if, if we're, yeah, if we are not prepared to meet our needs, then what business do we have saying that we're we're going to govern, right. right? If we're not That's prepared right. to um, govern by directly meeting our needs, and you know something that you brought up about the, um, I just wanted to to connect this to something that I think is a really important part of this conversation about um, about um, pathways to solutions, climate and and um, and environmental racism is um, is this this thing you talked about about like the, the sort of um, the reformist or regulatory frameworks mm -hmm. um, and this is one of the things I think that's really like whether it's the healing clinic collective whether it's transformative justice and mm -hmm. folks who are looking you know if we are prison abolitionists which I am then I need to I need to be figuring out I need to be part of a community of practice that's asking the question how are we going to navigate harm and hurting in a way that that's right. is that is that doesn't depend on policing in prisons right we need we need to actually create those solutions in our communities and um and I I I think about this idea of sort of rights versus regulation right the the mm -hmm. the regulatory the existing structures of governance whether it's about the environment um, or even whether it's about um, the particular aspects of the env environment that are um, like policing and the and the the, the murder of um, Black Indigenous and people of color, particularly Black folks in America, um, the the mechanisms for dealing that dealing with all of that are these regulatory frameworks, and regulatory frameworks are not the same thing as rights. Right. And this idea, you know, and I think this is really this is really an important distinction, particularly for 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 those of us who are interested in this eco larger question of ecological justice. It's is this, um, you know, with the health, the healing clinic is a really good example for me of this. You know, if I ask um, people, I do this all the time in workshops, like how many people believe in universal health care and everybody raises their hand or how many people believe healthcare is a human right? Everybody raises their hand. 
And if you believe that healthcare is a human right, then all economic activity must be subordinate to that right. And so any economic activity that infringes upon that right is a form of violence because rights are not given and rights are not taken away. They are violated and that is the origin of violence. That's right. And if we were to say healthcare, if we truly were to organize around the notion of healthcare as a human right, it would look more like the healing clinic mm. than, um, than the structures of industrial medicine that are essentially a net transfer of life expectancy from poor people in the global south to rich people in the global north. Mm. And you can say that about anything. You can say that about housing. You can say that about, um, you know, and that idea of rights-based frameworks around our organizing and that the only way to, ex- to um, ensure rights is to actually exercise them, them. Yeah. to practice them. Now, you can say you have the right all you want, but until you actually practice it, you don't contest the legitimacy of existing authority, which either says you can or you can't do it. And so to me, that's like a really, uh, the healing clinic transformative justice work, even all of the other work around commoning, like um, People's Solar Energy Fund and the creation of community-based, community-owned cooperative solar that is contesting the legitimacy of the the enclosure of a basic resource we all need, mm-hmm. um, whether, it's, um, whether it's energy or food sovereignty. These are all essentially um, anti-enclosure movements. And um, and so I think that's really important. And um, I want to um, invite you to say a little bit about, like, for you, the with the importance of being grounded in ancestry and traditional knowledge in this work, because, um, like, you know, one the only place that I know of in which the, the this foundational principle of free, prior, and informed consent, where consent is the mm-hmm. basis of collective rights which essentially means that we must, um, you know, we must share governance as commons in a, in a caring way is in the Universal Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Mm. Um, and I, I feel this like deep connection between consent in terms of, um, you know, uh, indigenous pathways to commoning and to com- build, creating commons, shared resources in general, but also, and of course, um, the, the, the infringement upon consent that is embodied in the patriarchal culture of our society right. um, and how those things, you know, how enclosure and, <sighs> you know, and entitlement go hand in hand and how ind- some your indigenous grounding has been really kind of a guide around a lot of that wisdom. So I would love for you to share a little bit about that. Small question, small question. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Okay. No, Sorry. no, no, it's good. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go back just a little bit to answer that around the like, yeah, yeah. Just something you said made me think about, um, oh, when you were talking about prisons ooh, and people being able to imagine something else, right? And so even those of us who our communities are very much targeted by the police, our young people or, you know, dark people in our ethnic groups, right? Super targeted, um, have a really hard time. I mean, like the the depth of how ingrained it is that 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 there no, it's still the best thing to do. There's not another option. That's often true for many people. Um, so just you know, also like there's a big mental leap to take around the health, right? Um, because people 
really, 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 really trust doctors. Like anyone who's a scientist of any kind, right? It's like, we've seen it so many times. We've heard it so many times. Um, you know, they are the authority. Scientists say, the United Medical Industry says, you know, and that's like the ultimate authority that like, so making that leap in our minds is a really big deal. And until we are presented with information about ancestral cultures, until you actually have the opportunity to learn, and I'll admit for me, for me, it was a real, it was like, oh, wow, my ancestors were astrophysicists you know, and they functioned in the material plane and the spiritual plane. And that's where all their knowledge came from. Right. So like the Mexica people, they, they drew drawings of what, um, fire, the flames, tongues of flame that come off the sun, tongues of flame. Is that what they're called? Yeah. Yeah. Solar solar flares, I think. Yeah. Something like that. There's, they have drawings of them. They're in the codices. They're carved into the pyramids. Well, guess what? They look just like the NASA photos that were taken with super telescopes, right? So until, I mean, that was one thing that I learned, but it's like, we actually, the way that indigenous people are portrayed by the media and the government, you know, it's just so like antiquated. They're like these people from the past, they were back, all of that internalized, I think stops us from allowing ourselves to believe that peoples that didn't have this kind of technology that we're used to, the kind of instruments we're used to seeing doctors and people use, how else did they know what kind of sickness you had? How did they really know, right? Like we can't imagine it. And so for me, I just can't underscore the importance of like learning, learning about ancestral ways of life. Pick one, pick your own lineage you know, pick a popular one, pick whatever's closest on the shelf or, or that you have a friend that can tell you about their lineage. But until you really um, kind of get into the fact that we didn't need all of this, like we didn't need petroleum and fossil fuels. We don't, we didn't need these electronics. You know, we didn't, I mean, some, some of my ancestors from the Yucatan area, they performed surgery without medical, uh, metal instruments. They predict. They predicted like in massive, you know, weather events. I mean, they did that with no quote unquote electronic technologies, right? Um, and so I feel like there's, you know, the leap in the mind to undo all the discriminatory thoughts, all the sort of racist thoughts, you know, that we've been fed about what indigenous people um, are and 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 what they're capable of without all the modern tools that we have is is really important um and then when you think about some of the um contemporary social justice principles that we rest on you find all of them in old 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 texts you know so part of this is like you know the principle of sankofa if we just look back if we look back say oh or in our in our in our cultural thinking, we think of the past as behind us, right? That's actually not true for cultures every indigenous cultures everywhere. So if we think about our ancestors and the way that they lived and what they were able to do, um, yeah, we can we can sort of start to regain respect and acceptance that we can trust different ways that are not biomedical yeah. ways that are not industrial ways. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, if I could just build on that a little bit, I think yeah, um, like for me, for me, like 
um, the way I think about it is I, I want to draw a really sharp distinction between, um, and we talk about this at the, um, the ETC group, the et cetera group, the working on technology, mm -hmm. the ETC stands for erosion technology and corporate concentration. But one of the, one of the things that we try to distinguish between is science and scientism. Mm -hmm. um, and I hate, I hate STEM, for example, I hate science, technology, engineering, and math because the conflation of science as a method of inquiry with the production of technology or with the engineering of, mm -hmm. uh, uh, or an engineering is an attempt to act. It's, it's, it's part of the, the sort of corporatization or the co-optation of um, science as a, method of inquiry is based in questioning and mm -hmm. seeking to know. And there are many forms of science and um, that seek, you know, internally consistent ways of making meaning of the world. Mm -hmm. And then scientism just becomes right. like any other religion. If we're not allowed to question it, then, you know, it's got the same, it's got vestments of power, just like any other um, right. religion, it's the lab coat and the stethoscope, you know, and, mm -hmm. and it's um, so it, it, for me, um, you know, I'm in Vandana Shiva talks about this, this idea of of where new ecological knowledge and traditional ecological knowledge come together, where the mm -hmm. idea of, oh, of yeah. observed open inquiry into what the, the nature of the world and using um, the diverse, um, you know, and, and looking for the commonalities and diverse knowledge systems is a useful you know, way to reflect and make meaning. Um, so I just wanted to lift that up yeah. because I think oftentimes scientism, scientism is when we um, we aren't actually ironically allowed to do the thing that science wants us to do, which is to doubt and question. Right. Make our own observations. Um, How dare we? And make our own observations. And and of course, all of that has more to do with capitalism and, and extractivism um, than it even has. Exactly. It's like, um, yeah. and we see that in the, in the institutions that are supposed to be our scientific institutions are actually profit driven, which means that they are interested in, in uh, the enclosure of, um, of the wealth of the living world. Um, right. And, you know, I think that's, that, that to me is like at the heart of the problem. That's where universities that should be places of public learning end up becoming pl pl places of patent production. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, and, and that's just an intellectual enclosure mm -hmm. and, and all enclosures are predicated on violence, um, whether it's the border around the nation state or the fence around your house that's patrolled by the police mm -hmm. or the patent law that, you know, says that ideas can be owned. Um, right. So, yeah, I just, wanted to, I, I just wanted to, yeah, stolen and unknown. So I just, I just wanted to, to build on that, uh, um, to offer that a little bit. Um, one thing, um, Carla, that um, I think it would be really good for us to talk about is sort of, we, we talk about this a lot. I'm, I'm going to ask you to reflect on an expression that we, we mm -hmm. tend to use, um, uh, that this idea that social inequity is a form of mm -hmm. ecological imbalance mm -hmm. and will inherently result in greater ecological erosion. That idea that mm -hmm. we tend to, it's again, getting back to this I think fundamental danger of an environmental movement that sees people as separate from nature and that therefore is allowed to say we work on forest protection without um, recognizing that um, we cannot protect the forests while people are getting murdered in the streets. We cannot, um, you know, that you cannot 
you cannot have an environmental movement that doesn't recognize that the entire economy is built on disposable people and disposable communities. And I would love to hear your just take, reflection, mm-hmm. articulation of the sort of that core idea and how that connects the, you know, yeah. how how you learned that connection, how you came to that connection. Well, yeah, I mean, it was really um, the my strongest point of decolonization around that was sitting in ceremony, you know, um, there's also something that, um, you know, traditional medicine and sort of that, the, the energy of, um, of, of a ceremonial space, um, in a whole different way, sort of allows you to integrate, not here. (laughs) That's kind of the difference, you know, it's like, it's not a cerebral process of like intellectual grasping. It's like, you know, through living also, right? Like, and you you and I share in common with lots of our comrades and certainly lots of people watching this. It's like, we relate intimately with the earth that we stand on, right? And so it's like this process of relationship, of building relationship, but then really understanding like, oh, we're all, we're, you know, the, the sort of famous um, Native American um, sentiment of all my relations, right? Which is something that I think um, we credit mostly the Sioux Nation, you know, for bringing that um, as a as a as a phrase forward for us. All my relations, you know. I remember thinking, like, wow, you know, actually, there's things that are found in space. You know, all the things found in space, they're all made of the same elements that we consider like the Earth elements, like the, you know, the table of elements, um, the periodic table, and we're all this, we're all just made of different uh, ratios and, and amounts of the same elements that produce, you know, all ignited with that, con esa chispa, you know, with that spark of life. Um, that's the mystery. Um, and then we come to life in all these diverse, um, all these diverse forms, right. And understanding truly that what affects one affects all. So, I mean, I, for part of it is just like, you have to yeah. accept that as a principle. You know, you have to accept that as a principle that it, that we are connected actually. Like we're all, like you said, all the, you said something around like, oh, well, uh, I forget what you're referring to, but all the air that we have is all the air we have. It's all the air we ever had. It's just mm-hmm. cycling around. All the water we have is all the water we ever had. It's just cycling mm-hmm. around, right? Um, so, you know, if we understand ourselves then as like just in relationship to things, even if you don't consider yourself like I'm an earth lover, you eat plants for food all the time. You know, you eat animals, like they're coming from the environment. What does this have to do with, you know, with social justice? Well, in, in a more modern context, um, you know, we can't, we can't escape the disconnect that came from the colonization process, right? Where peoples were actually removed, like physically removed um, from their place and, and how, you know, whether it was indigenous people here or it was the trans-Atlantic uh, slave trade or it was like folks in India, right, from your, from where you're from um, and what that did um, to the place for lacking their stewards and to the people, right, for not having, where, where's the, our meaning now, right? And so like mm-hmm. our meaning now, the only place we find meaning in that context then is to find a job to serve the new like ecology that we think we're part, you know, it's like the economy becomes our ecology. Like everything is about buying and selling of something. Um, And 
I have witnessed like in really straightforward ways, you know, with my relationship, for example, to the Navajo community, you know, how that manifests, you know, a, a beautiful, huge, um, God, a tribe with still so much intact, like tradition, language, story, uh, a, a super deep and elaborate and extensive um, cosmology and ceremonial world and folks, you know, taken away from their land denied the right to access the resources to make a dignified life for themselves. But guess what? They can get a job at the refinery or at the coal extraction site that happens to be now on their res and is one of the only forms of employment that they have. You know, so it's like I've, I have personally many relationships with which folks who on the one hand are in a ceremony or in a cultural space, you know, honoring the water and the land and then the next day go to work at a refinery and pull oil from the ground or refine it and put waste into the water. And, and that's, that's just a very direct, you know, example. Yeah. It's not yeah. all that direct, but I think to make a point is like when you, when you take away people's right to govern their lives and govern their relationship to place in particular, when that relationship has ancestral roots or at least historic roots, where there's actually a relationship. We don't just know the land, the land knows us too, you know? And so when you take us away, the land suffers from that lack of relationship yeah. as well. And then we do what we have to do. We are survivalists like all other species, right? So we're like, I have to do something to care for my family and myself. Even if it means I have to hurt the earth, I'm going to do that. Yeah. Yeah, because people are just navigating trying to navigate the, um, you know, the contradictions of the world we live in. Like, yeah. you know, um, people don't, um, don't blow up their own mountains for coal. People right. are forced to do it. And uh, it's, and it's that, it's that, um, you know, I, you, you're, you, what you were saying reminds me of our friend Roberto um, Nut Lewis from yes. uh, Black Mesa Water Coalition, who always talks about um, recognizing that, um that that they as as Navajo are the keystone species of ecological restoration mm -hmm. in their community. That without their dry land farming, erosion happens, and so they see okay. that you know he, he. So for him, that the recovery of those practices, the preservation of those practices, the teaching of them to young people, is actually about the deep um, interdependence of, of of people in place. Um, and it, you know, and we see that everywhere. It's like our friend Colette um, from from um, Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy, who, when when um, in post, you know, post um, Katrina and then post um, BP disaster, um, if you ask them, you know, what are your demands? Their demands were not jobs and compensation. The demand that she would always say is, "We want our wetlands back," because if the wetlands were there. Then, um, then the you know the the oil drilling wouldn't be. It's basically the recognition of, um, and that and people wouldn't have been getting shot during Katrina because if we had had our wetlands, it would have been. And again, this to me gets back to these fundamental questions of rights, um, territorial integrity, these these um, these things. And of course, like I just want to name um, uh, that we are trying to navigate those contradictions, right? Like, so from, yeah. from my perspective, it's like, yeah, there, we are, um, you know, we are facing um, 
a serious um, ecological crisis. One aspect of it is climate. Um, but um, people have tended to think of climate justice as this idea of like, you can win on climate change and you can win on social justice issues. It can be jobs that are good for the environment. And it's like, or this idea that it's a win-win, that we can, we can get some justice wins and we can um, also address the climate crisis. And I think for me, it's like, it's not a win-win. It's the only way to win. The only path forward for us is a path that recognizes that being in right relationship to each other, which means um, confronting the war on diversity that is represented by industrial agriculture and biocide and um, insecticide and herbicide um, and deforestation, that that war on diversity has that, has that facet. And it is also the war on diversity that is white supremacy and racism because that's what it's designed to do. It's designed to eradicate diversity, to take all of the languages and all of the cultures of all of the people of all of Turtle Island and call them Native American, to take all of the languages of all of the cultures of all of the people of all of the diversity of Africa and the diaspora and call, call it black. And, to, and, and it's true for white. Take all the people of all the cultures, of all the languages, of all of the knowledge systems of all of uh, Europe and a few other places to, to, you know, who get access to the, to the, to the, the, the category of whiteness and to call it white. Mm-hmm. And, and for, for us, part of, part of, for me, one of the, 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 the learnings from your work is like, if you want to disrupt that category, those categories, you don't deny that it's real. You don't say, oh, racism doesn't exist. And you don't get, you don't pretend you're colorblind. What you do is cultivate the diversity it seeks to repress. Mm-hmm. Find your story, find your ancestry, learn your, um, your culture. What is the knowledge that is being um, repressed, that is being waged war against in the service of extractivism? Yes. Because that's the knowledge we need to move forward together in a good way to honor all that, to honor that diversity that is, yeah. you know, being assaulted. Yes say it and like that really makes me think of you know one of the most powerful quotes that I've come across in our work which you were probably there the first time I saw it It was on one of Brock Dolman's slides of a mural I believe from um, you know Venezuela or something like that of like of a mural that said um, you can only I forget if it was in the positive or negative but you can only protect what you understand or you can't protect what you don't understand and again for me this comes back to that crisis of disconnection right? And the homogenization, the monocrop of the mind, you know, system um, moving, Mm -hmm. rolling out because through, through all, when I was talking about that walk through human history, you know, and all of those places in, in human history um, where uh, what is now government and imperialist force and, you know, all the tenets of uh, this global um, way, were developing all along, you know, removing the natives from, you know, from here to call it preservation, you know, stealing people from Africa to create uh, a slave economy here, you know, all that disconnection um, and the, the forced homogenization. It's like, we, we don't know that anymore. You know, there's so much that we, we don't know what it's like to 
um, you know, find a water source for our family anymore. We don't, you know, a lot of people don't know what it's like to cultivate uh, their own food. People don't understand how to manage a water budget. You know, it's like all popular to catch water in rain barrels now, you know, but people don't know what that means. People don't see the diversity anymore. Like we're literally, we're living on top of concrete in, in the cities, right? Which is like what, 80% of the US is urban, you know, or people anyway, live in, a, in an urban context right now. So literally um, we have been separated by the institutional structure you know, from the elements that we need and that we always were in direct relationship with to provide our basic needs. And so we don't, we don't know them anymore. We don't know that diversity anymore. We don't know what it means anymore to um, be just as impacted by a fire as like a neighbor animal, you know, <laughs> like that used to be a reality for us. So why would we protect fire ecology? You know, when we don't know that, you know, like here in California, it's so easy to like, fuck the fire, you know, da, da, da. Like, it's like, we're like, no, we need the fire. We just, <laughs> you know, we just need to take guidance from the indigenous people that are very much still here and still have a relationship to control, you know, traditional controlled burning and learn how to respect that. If we realize in this age, who is not aware of this quote, climate crisis, who is not aware of the ecological breakdown and do we, if you think, just like your question about healthcare, do you think it's important to salvage ecological systems so that humans can survive and our children? Great. Then all economic activity should be subordinate to that. We can't suppress the fire. We got to move the hell out of where the fire needs to be so the fire can do its thing and that forest can be here in a hundred years for my great grandchildren. You know, I do think, like, I, I want to be clear that. Um, we do need to fight the fossil fuel industry. We do need to, um, you know, That's shut right. down pollu polluting industry, and we do need to control the control the cops or get, and get rid of the cops. And um, just as you said, it's like you you cannot um, protect that you don't which you don't understand. I think um, we will only protect and defend that which we love. And if we put all our energy in um, into um, into fighting against everything, we will learn to love the fight and we will just be assimilated into the process of helping capitalism navigate its contradictions. Then if we actually say, what are the needs that it that we have in our communities that aren't getting met and let's meet them. And by doing so, um, we we change the conditions of what's possible. And so for me, the, that's that to me is like at the center of my pathways to solutions um, thinking is like, okay, Part of like, I believe that um, that I believe in rights of Mother Earth, and I believe that then we should be organizing ourselves right. um, and building economic infrastructure that's subordinate to the rights of Mother Earth. I believe that people as communities have the right to the resources required to create productive, dignified, and ecologically sustainable livelihoods. And if we believe that, then we must reorganize ourselves to meet that need, which means what are those resources, land, air, water, I would argue even capital, financial capital. What does it mean to create commons of those resources? And that's sort of, for me, the work of, of just transition and the work of the pathways to solutions. It does involve intervening in policy and, and fighting against, and fighting against things we don't want. But then, 
the piece we've neglected for so long as a social movement is living into the 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 economy we know we need and and um because that's also the economy that both will help us navigate the inevitable consequences of the crisis that's been set in motion for hundreds of years mm-hmm. and also um you know is in and of itself a distur- a disturbance in uh the um and the existing um existing economy and hopefully a deep disruption in the existing mm-hmm. economy, mm-hmm. allowing for a new kind of healthy succession, mm-hmm. um, which is what, which is what we need and want. And um, so with that. Thanks yeah. though, Paul, so much. Thank I just want to say thank you, brother. <laughs> um, thank you. It's, it's good. It's good to just have the opportunity to wrap, you know, about all these yeah. things. And yeah, I appreciate yeah, you. And, and thank and you to for, for the folks at home. I hope it wasn't Yeah, thank you, CIS, and I hope it wasn't too stream of consciousness for folks at home, but that's just how we roll. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional, unceded Ramaytush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about Native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the Indigenous land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lau Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, and all of those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.